Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Michigan Law in Chicago, joined as always by my partner, Rob Hunt of Linnae Holdings out in sunny San Diego, and with our uh, ever-present producer, Dan Humiston, somewhere, probably in Colorado today. So thank you all for joining. Uh, I think we've got a great show for us today. We've got uh, a wonderful dead show uh, from Berkeley, California in 1985 that we're going to be featuring uh, we're going to be doing a little bit of talking about David Lindley and Gary Rossington, two rock legends who died in the past week. And we've got some uh, very, very interesting cannabis news, a lot of it which I think is good news and supports our position that everybody should get the hell away from cannabis and let us enjoy it. Uh, but let's start off by diving into the uh, Grateful Dead from the Berkeley Community Theater in Berkeley, California on March 13th, 1985. Dan? I got to tell you, there's not many Grateful Dead songs that I love as much as Friend of the Devil. It's just the ultimate Jerry showpiece. It's a song that even non-deadheads know. He almost never fails on it. And that guitar solo building up to that crescendo and diving into the lyrics, it's good stuff. It's the layering that's always so amazing to me, especially like what we just listened to. Where it's just like, you know, it almost sounds like two guitars playing because Garcia is so quick on the way he's moving up and down. And I'll say that like I, I like Friend of the Devil slow. I like it fast. I, I like it acoustic. There's so many different ways that they've done it over the years, and uh, it never fails to, to you know be one of the, the best songs normally in a first set and in any acoustic set as well. I agree. You know the '80s and the mid '80s. Uh, you know before he had his uh, his little health issue in '80. What was it? Seven, '86, '87. You know, in 85, he was going strong. These shows predated the 20th anniversary Greek shows, but just by a couple of months. And we'll hear later on, uh, Jerry's not in the best of voices on this night. His, his throat's a little scratchy, but he sure makes up for it with that guitar playing. Yeah, no, I was, the Berkeley shows are always so hot, and uh, I'm pretty familiar with this one. So I agree with you. I don't think it was necessarily his best vocal night, but his, uh, his, his Musical talent's definitely shown through the entire night. Now, did you ever have a chance to uh, see a show at the Berkeley Community Theater? I've never seen one there. Uh, and I've never seen you know Phil or any Grateful Dead member play at, um, at the Greek either. I've seen a bunch of other people play at the Greek, but I've never seen any Grateful Dead person play at the Greek. I always forget how young you are. Um, but <laughs> I never saw the Berkeley Community Theater. Heard great things about it. You know, A lot of my friends who were living out there in the mid-80s went there quite a bit. You know, for, I mean, for these guys, it was like, you know, talk about a home field advantage. You know, they're already on their side of the bay. They play the show and, you know, cruise home in no time. And, you know, Jerry's sleeping in his own sheets and blankets that night. And, you know, he should come in and, and, and tear the house down. That's a that's a great thing for them. And, 
you know, that's the strongest argument, at least back then, that I could make for wanting to be living out there. But uh, there's probably a few other reasons now, but that's still a good one, right? When you're in their backyard, uh, you get to hear their best stuff night after night. So really, really good. Uh, that's, that's why I moved to the Bay Area for a while. That was, that was the entire catalyst when Garcia was playing so many shows at the Warfield uh, in the early 90s. You know, that's why I started spending summers out there is to catch as much Garcia and Grateful Dead as I could. I figured from the spring, the spring run in May to the fall run, normally they'd start right before uh, East Coast Fall Tour, you were guaranteed to get 12 or 15 dead shows between Shoreline and Cal Expo and, uh, you know, one or two other spots in, in that area. And then you get all the Garcia band shows that would be playing in the, in the area as well, including Warfields. It's a great reason. And to think I was spending all that time living in Chicago, but what are you going to do? At least we got the cold winters. Lucky um, for that, right? <laughs> you got to be lucky for something. Um, we're going to come back to this show in a minute. Uh, we got some good stuff coming up. Uh, we got some special shout outs for uh, David Lindley and Gary Rossington of Leonard Skinner, who both passed away, unfortunately, in the last week or so. But, you know, in, I, I spent so much time planning out the music on the days when I planned the shows. Rob, that I, I always forget that I have to leave some time available for the inevitable number of, you know, amazing marijuana stories that are going to be out there, um, both good and bad. Uh, but, you know, starting off with a, a trend that, you know, started to look like it was going one way, kind of went another way. And now we're kind of in a holding pattern, you know, just in the last uh, uh, few days as, as uh, local elections have taken place around the country. Uh, the Delaware House of Representatives approved uh, adult use marijuana legislation. Uh, the Oklahoma voters rejected an adult use uh, ballot initiative. And the Hawaii Senate approved marijuana legalization and some psychedelic research bills. Uh, in, in Delaware, where they approved the, uh, the legalization bill, um, and now they're just waiting for the Senate to vote on that, but then that can go forward. Uh, in Hawaii, the House has to, has to give their... Uh, authorization. But what really surprised me was Oklahoma just flat out rejecting adult use because depending on what side you look at it, they've either been the most successful or the most wildly erratic medical state since they basically gave the licenses out to anyone who wanted them and could meet certain uh, basic qualifications and just, you know, kind of let the free market dictate what happens. And such a large number of of licenses were handed out uh, that I always just, you know, took that to I mean, if that many people thought they could do business in the state, uh, that must be a state that very strongly supports this. But not only was the initiative voted down, uh, it was voted down statewide uh, in just about every single county in Oklahoma. Um, in, in fact, in some of the counties, it was the only proposal on the ballot uh, the other day, um, which I guess is kind of a unique situation for cannabis legalization, right? And I think a lot of people just get by by saying, well, people are going to be coming out to vote for president, senators, local representatives, tax issues. Let's stick marijuana on there. And maybe as they go through, they'll kind of get to it and say, yeah, sure, why not? Instead of having time to sit there and really fixate on it and decide if it's something that they can live with or not. Um, but, you know, that's the way it went through. There was a special election uh, called for this. And um, it had everything. It had excise tax. It had a provision in there uh, for people in prison currently for activity that was now made legal under the measure. They'd have the ability to file a petition for rehearing, reversal of conviction, dismissal of the case. Uh, They say that more than 4,500 people in Oklahoma are arrested annually for cannabis. And the the, uh, medical marijuana, they thought, has already reduced that amount, saying 
that the number of people uh, incarcerated for marijuana charges has also declined. They projected the state to have more than 100 million in new revenue annually, or almost 450 million between 2024 and 2028. And yet it didn't pass. What do you make of that? I make of it anytime you've got a single issue on the ballot and there aren't uh, a lot of people that uh, are, are coming out to vote, that the only people that do vote are the ones that are strongly in favor or strongly opposed to a uh, to an initiative. So I'd say in this case, um, if you probably look at the numbers, and again, I haven't confirmed it yet. I just saw the news yesterday that it didn't pass. But I would expect that, you know, it's probably a, a tiny, tiny uh, minority of who normally votes in Oklahoma elections. And getting people to come out and vote for a single issue is really, really tough. So, you know, I think if the same initiative was put on the ballot on a uh, presidential year or on a, um, a midterms year, I would expect it would sail through. Now, the only other thing I can think about this one is, to your point, Oklahoma has been, you know, the closest thing to the Wild West that you can think of in the last couple of years. Uh, it, it's almost out of control in terms of, you know, how much uh, cultivation is happening there. Certainly far, far more than that state can consume. And I think everyone's aware of that. So it's, it's entirely possible that uh, there was a backlash against this where people said, you know, like the last time we, we went to the, uh, the polls on this, uh, we passed something that ended up being not what we were hoping would, you know, the state would look like, yet here we are. So again, I wasn't, I wasn't super surprised that it didn't pass based on the way it was put on the ballot. You know, and it, apparently there was some uh, competition going on between uh, various organizations uh, who both supported legalization, but in entirely different ways. So they didn't have a unified approach to the voters. Um, and, you know, it, it is very possible that the presence of an old West uh, Wild West marijuana environment in Oklahoma may have soured some people on the idea of expanding that even more by now making it available to everyone. Of course, the flip side of that is, is now the state knows uh, that if it can't count on all of its own citizens to consume that amount, people can come in from outside of the state. I don't know how many people would necessarily go to Oklahoma, but, you know, if you're driving on, uh, you know, Route 10 across the country or uh, whichever ones it is, you know, that, that cut a cry, you got to grow through Oklahoma most and never, never run out. Well, the, the question is not, but it's not even a question of, you know, Oklahoma, you going to Oklahoma, it's a question of Oklahoma going to you, right? So, I mean, like, there's no shortage of people that are willing to jump in their car to take, you know, Oklahoma cannabis to other states. And I think that at this point is, is pretty clear that, you know, Oklahoma is exporting a ton of cannabis right now. So, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm lawmakers in surrounding states, you know, I'm, I'm probably pretty pleased that this thing didn't pass because already... Texas is being flooded with, with Oklahoma cannabis. Uh, you know, the entire eastern seaboard is being flooded with Oklahoma cannabis. There's tons of people that have moved out of California that were legal growers in California that decided to hang it up because they couldn't make a living out there that have moved to Oklahoma because Oklahoma represents you know, a much more relaxed environment in terms of, uh, in terms of enforcement and in terms of um, you know, basically nobody paying attention to the industry. So uh, you know, I would expect that there's, as I said, a lot of people in that state, especially the conservative side of that state, that are very concerned as to how this market has developed. And quite honestly, I don't blame them. It's a, it's a much different situation than I think most people thought they were voting for a few years ago. I can see that. And, you know, look, maybe it's a wake-up call to the uh, cannabis industry in that state uh, that if we want to be able to move on to the next step, we're going to have to, you know, work on uh, bringing to the public a program and, a, and, a, and an industry that they're that they can live with and you know even be proud of and we'll see if they're up for that challenge 
Yeah, we'll find out soon enough. But uh, I, I don't think it's the last we've seen of Oklahoma trying to get this uh, this bill passed. I'd say next time they won't do it as a standalone. I think you're probably right, and I would agree that that would certainly help. Um, Hawaii is another interesting one. Hawaii, the Senate approved marijuana legalization, uh, but the House hasn't. And the articles that I were reading, that I've been reading about it, suggests that the House isn't necessarily likely on this one to come around anytime soon. You know, Hawaii is always going to be another one of those states that no matter what the reality on the ground is, people automatically assume it's just a haven for marijuana. You know, everybody has heard of their Maui Waui and, you know, boy, you go to, to Hawaii and you can just buy the best of this. You drive on the road to Kana and there's people all over the place selling this stuff. And, you know, whether all of that is true or not, there's another story. But that's certainly the impression. So it's always a little bit jarring to hear that a, a, a state like Hawaii uh, isn't just, you know, falling all over itself to play off its legacy and, and really develop a market. Yeah. Well, I mean, so I, I think you prefaced it well by saying whether there's any truth to that. You know, I think that for a long time in the 70s, uh, Hawaii was definitely considered to be a, a cannabis haven. And as you said, the Maui Waui that was coming out was, you know, synonymous with some of the other big strains at the time, whether it was, you know, Panama Red or, or like, um, you know, the early uh, Mexican and Colombian, you know, things that were coming up. But, you know, the original sort of uh, the original sativas that we were seeing were coming out of Hawaii or Jamaica. And so it definitely had a huge reputation. But that was, you know, that's that's 40, 50 years ago now. So if you think about what's happened since then and, you know, all the things that have come and gone since then, I mean, there, there's a whole wave of California weed. There's a whole wave of like Mexican weed, then British Columbian weed that, that hit the United States. You know, I would say that uh, the mantle was certainly passed away from Hawaii a long time ago. And now it's, you know, it's somewhat trying to return, but it's certainly not the, uh, in the same way that, uh, that some of the other um, hot spots of cultivation are. So, you know, does it deserve it at this point? Probably not. Do I think that Hawaii you know, still wants to have the reputation of, of being uh, hospitable to uh, to cannabis? Yeah, I think there's an argument for that. But uh, but not surprised at all that you know this this isn't um, again what, what people think it is. Uh, unless you're a student of the industry, you know you're not watching trends the way that you know other people are. Uh, and I think that you know Hawaiian cannabis just doesn't have the same cachet it used to. Okay. Well, you know, and that certainly may be. And, um, you know, the state has to make its own decision in terms of what they want to do. We'll have to follow that one and, and see where it goes. But, you know, what's, what's interesting is even in this one, you know, it, the Senate president says he's personally not a big fan of the legislation, but he recognizes that it's supported by a majority of the Senate caucus and uh, he believes uh, citizens of the state. The House Speaker, however, who's also a Democrat, by the way, say that they thought it would be better to wait and take a look at this over the summer and come back with a bill that's comprehensive and addresses concerns that have always been raised about marijuana use in Hawaii, including federal restrictions and, and that kind of stuff. So, you know, maybe uh, they'll take a more measured approach and they'll be able to come back and revisit this one. Um, you know, I, I know, uh, and you can talk on this better than I, but uh, the, all of the large number of Californians who make their way to Hawaii on a fairly regular basis, because from California, you can do that kind of thing. Wouldn't be bad to have some good uh, Maui Waui waiting for you when you got off the plane. Screw those lays they want to put around your neck, you know, have them hand out an ounce when you get off the plane. Yeah, I mean, look, I, th I think you can still find as much weed as you want down there. And I think nowadays, you know, no one really fears flying with their own weed from California. So, you know, do you just jump on the plane with uh, with whatever you need for your, your one week vacation? I think it's more likely than, than going and looking for uh, for someone to buy weed from once you get there. But, you know, we always think about the, uh, the legal industry instead of the illicit industry. Uh, you know, in the legal industry, I was just down in Hawaii over Thanksgiving. There's certainly no shortage of medical shops 
but for adult use, yeah, it's a it's a bit trickier. But uh, but adult use, I think you you can find it. You can find it if you're looking for it. Yep. There's no problems there. And Delaware is the flip. In Delaware, the uh, House has approved their marijuana legalization bill. Uh, it's it's pending into the Senate. You know, it's always hard to to read through. You know, all the political ease that these guys throw out at us in terms of why they like it, why they don't like it. They you know they tend to kind of speak in generalities. Well, we need the voters to take a look at this. Well, we need the all of the uh, legislators to go back and take a, a bigger look at this. Um, but, you know, th- at the same time, uh, one of the leaders of the uh, House said that it's time for us to listen to our constituents and make Delaware the 22nd state to legalize, to legalize adult use recreational marijuana. And, you know, I say, yes, why not? Um, however, their, their Democratic governor vetoed former marijuana legislation. Uh, which I find surprising, John Carney. So uh, this time they're saying that for, to make it happen, the House has to not only approve it, but approve it by a veto-proof majority. And so there's there's a lot going on with that too. Um, again, it seems like so much political capital and energy and time being spent pursuing something that the, the, the legislators don't even appear to necessarily even know exactly what they're dealing with. And if so, you know, shame on them for not really taking the time. Each one of these articles is a story and the government not necessarily knowing how it's going to work, maybe not really caring, kind of addressing it because they think the voters want to. And on the one hand, it allows us access to it. But on the other hand, it doesn't do us any favors by giving us a real patchwork set of regulations all over the place, sometimes patchwork with even in, within a state or even within a county within a state. And, you know, that just makes it hard for everyone and uh, you know, puts law enforcement in, in a position that they shouldn't have to be in as far as marijuana is concerned. Yeah, I think the last point's a very good one. You know, law enforcement is just consistently confused as to what they can and can't do. And I think nowadays, ask any law enforcement official what's legal and what's not, and they'd have a tough time telling you. I don't think they know what the law is from, from county to county and state to state and uh, you know, even you know, throughout the state. So it's uh, and, and then it's a question of, you know, like, well, is, is D8 legal? Is, is, D, you know, is, is HHC legal? I don't think most most of them have an idea. And there's now times you're seeing the attorney general say one thing, but the uh, the letter of the law says something else, and they can go, "Oh, we consider it all to be illegal." Okay, well, is that right or is that is that wrong? And then as law enforcement risking a um, a lawsuit from from whoever it is they're you know uh, popping at the time, so there's a great deal of confusion. I think if anyone's looking for consistency in the laws, it's probably law enforcement itself to make sure they can actually make legal and lawful arrests, not that I support them making too many arrests in, in any canvas-based um, actions at all. But, you know, if they're going to do it, they should know that they're, uh, they're doing it properly. I don't, think, I don't think law enforcement officials are in the business of trying to arrest people um, okay. improperly. Um, let's turn our attention back to the Berkeley Community Theater for a minute. And uh, here's one part of this show that I really, really like. Uh, after the, uh, the dead played in Egypt in September of 1978, uh, they developed a relationship with Hamza al-Din uh, from that part of the world who uh, would would perform with them from time to time. Uh, he and Mickey Hart uh, formed a strong uh, percussion-based relationship. And uh, it just so happens that on uh, this night in Berkeley, California, uh, Olin Aragid comes out uh, at the end of the drums and before the space, uh, excuse me, Hamza al-Din comes out uh, to uh, do a, a very much shortened version of Olin Aragid, uh, an Egyptian tune that they they do play in full. It's about 20 minutes in length. If you have access to the uh, the CDs that came out for the uh, the pyramid shows, 
Uh, but let's go ahead and listen to a little of Olin Aragid with Hamza al-Din and the Grateful Dead. just cool you know and it it seems completely in line and in place to be heard at a grateful dead show and it's just one of those nights when you're lucky to be there yeah i agree you know, i always thought it was really cool the the dead would make a point of introducing people to uh to some world artists and really cool ones at that ones that they had a great deal of respect for uh you know a lot of stuff that mickey was doing at the time uh, was around exploring drumming around the world and uh, as a result, he brought out you know, all sorts of people. Hamza al Din on the on the tar, Babatunde uh, Olatunje, uh, as well as other drummers. You know, people that you'd never otherwise hear of that he you know did a lot of work with that eventually became Planet Drum. But uh, anytime you got a chance to see one of sort of the, the more rare guest appearances, you know, not necessarily a, a, a traditional guest you know guitar player, but you know. Uh, something like that. I mean, I got a chance to see the Guillotto monks play with, um, with the Grateful Dead. And that's not something you'd expect to see at a rock and roll concert. And you certainly don't expect to see Hamza Al-Din at a, at a rock and roll concert, but in Egypt, you know, really, um, well-known musician and a really well-respected musician. So yeah, very, very cool. Actually, did you, did you get a chance to see Hamza play? I have never seen him play live. Gotcha. Okay. I, I did see him play with the Grateful Dead and, uh, it was a really, really cool experience. Very nice. I mean, it sounds great, and I really love it. And I remember uh, when we had Rob Kovitz on the show from Dark Store Orchestra, uh, we played a little bit of the Egypt show and some of the percussion from there. And, uh, you know, he could appreciate it on a level that only a a Grateful Dead-style drummer could appreciate maybe. But uh, uh, it is good stuff. It's always fun to listen to. And, you know, that was just a time when the dead were keeping it lively. And, you know, you could walk into a show and and just not necessarily know what you were going to hear. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'd like to think that that was throughout their career. You know, there's definitely times, you know, like I, I walked into a show and saw Ken Nordine, as you did, you know, do spoken word. You know, that's, that's not something you, yeah, that you expect to see at a, at, at a concert. So, you know, that was, you know, what, 93, spring of 93. So, I mean, all, all the way towards the end, they were still doing things that, uh, that were catching off guard. I, I still think that uh, the Ken Kesey coming out and speaking during uh, the, the Halloween 91 was one of the most interesting things the Grateful Dead's ever done. So, you know, they, they kept it fresh and it wasn't, as I said, it wasn't always with, uh, with musicians. It was with um, whoever they thought was appropriate to bring up at the time, which is uh, something that's very, very unique to, to the way they played their music. You know what, that, that is also a very good point. And yeah, you know, it's it's a situation with them where um, a surprise, not in the sense that they were doing it at all, but, you know, look, there's a reason why uh, my wife always gives me shit that I'm always late for everything except a Grateful Dead concert. You know, for a Grateful Dead concert, I'm the one leading the pack. I want to get there 20 minutes early. 
the thing that drew all of us back show after show after show was the idea that if you missed a night, you might miss something you really had been waiting to see or that you couldn't have even conceived that they might do. Um, and, you know, and so, but there was plenty of nights where we walked into the theater and all we got was just a really hot Grateful Dead show. And there was nothing wrong with that. But if you happened to be there on one of those nights and you could sense or, you know, begin to recognize uh, that, oh my God, this is the night that Hamza al-Din is going to come out and play. It does, uh, you know, make all that travel and all that uh, uh, choreography that we all have to go through to uh, to get ourselves from here to there and to the next place and back again. Uh, you know, to catch our experience and to be there for those opportunities. Right? It, it never happens in your home theater. You always have to be traveling somewhere else to get something like that. And, you know, so that makes it worthwhile. Definitely, definitely, definitely. So going back to the world of cannabis for a minute, have you seen what's going on uh, with canopy growth? <laughs> yeah, the uh, the meltdown that continues to be canopy growth and the, the difficulties they're having in their home market. Yes, yeah, so I've been following it. You know, it's it's amazing to me. They they just announced that they're cutting their workforce by approximately thirty five percent, including eight hundred positions, uh, and forty one percent of those, almost three hundred positions, were terminated effective immediately. Uh, they say the layoffs came as the cannabis companies across North America have been shedding hundreds of jobs and closing facilities because of failing business plans, falling wholesale prices, and recession worries, which are all things that we've been talking about. Um, and, and, you know, we've noted things like, you know, even Curaleaf uh, shuttering a majority of its operations in California, Colorado and Oregon and reducing its payroll by 10 percent uh, and a latest sign of the ongoing difficulties for the cannabis market as a whole. Uh, these are staggering numbers, don't you think? You know, staggering. But at the same time, we've talked about so much about it, about, you know, how, how much trouble the industry is in right now. And again, you know, we can't conflate or, you know, we can't uh, I guess equate the uh, the Canadian market with the United States market, you know, they're, they're two very very different places, but they are both suffering um, in their own unique ways. So I, I don't think that, um, that we should be surprised by this. What, what's surprising to me is that they didn't do it sooner. I mean, uh, Canopy's been hemorrhaging cash for a long time. They haven't had you know a really sound business model for a long time. Uh, you know, they were only being rewarded for the past couple of years because they uh, they still had a decent balance sheet. But once that balance sheet goes and it appears to have gone, then then what do they have left? And the answer is not that much. So is there a, is there a reason for them to to keep all these people employed? Probably not. And uh, and, and I don't expect that it's going to get better. You know, I I, I, I don't expect Canopy uh, to actually make it through this downturn. You know, if you were to say handicap it now, you know, right. these guys are going to survive. Well, uh, that's I would good say to no. know. I mean, I, I not, not what they want to hear. Um, but it, look, it, it has to send a message, I think, to the industry as a whole, big guys, little guys, everybody, uh, that just because you're in, in marijuana, uh, doesn't guarantee anything. It's a business like any other business. And, uh, at the end of the day, you know, your level of success will be related to the efforts you put in and the, uh, d- decisions that you make some good, some bad. Yeah, uh, I think that, you know, Canopy was one that for a long time got a special level of deference uh, based on the fact they had, you know, $5 billion in investment money. You know, that's billion with a B that went into uh, their company and they've managed to squander it and they've managed to never figure out a way to turn a profit, even with that kind of, um, uh, you know, gasoline on their fire in the early days. They still can't make it work. So either it's, you know, bad management or it's a, a bad business model. But in, in Canopy's case, I would say it's a combination of both. And I don't think that's gotten better. And 
I think they keep trying to uh, to change out, you know, who's at the helm, and they keep trying to change out what their uh, their their go forward plan is, and they still never, you know, really come to the table with something that's viable. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens to the Canadian market. You know, the Canadian market for a long time looked to be very promising. Uh, it was you know, terribly, terribly overbuilt, which we realized in 2017, 2018. But, you know, you would have figured that at a certain point it would have stabilized and it still hasn't. You know, there's very few companies up there that are really doing all that well. And they're certainly all just, you know, a shadow of what they were, um, you know, back in the heyday of 2018. So, you know, whether it's a harbinger for the U.S. market, you know, we, we can see. But as I said, they're very different. We don't have the same sort of provincial um, uh, intervention that the Canadians do. But we certainly have it in, in terms of, um, you know, state by state regs and, those can be uh, terribly tricky as well. So, you know, let, let's keep watching it. But at the same time, um, don't be surprised to see uh, more carnage before it gets better, if it gets better. One of the things we mentioned at the beginning of the show, and, you know, I got to tell you, on the one hand, it, it, it helps focus on some of this other great music that's out there. But on the other hand, we're focusing on it because we're hearing that the people who that I grew up with, uh, who are my rock legends, um, you know, are now reaching that age uh, where they're going. And in the last week, we lost two of them, uh, two really big guys, David Lindley, uh, kind of a solo performer who played with a number of other acts. And uh, we can get into him more in a minute. And Gary Rossington, who was the last living original member of Leonard Skinner. And I got to tell you, that aged me a little bit too. You know, when, when I was hitting uh, junior high school, uh, back in the uh, early 70s, early to mid 70s, you know, Skinner was just hitting its peak. And who didn't love Sweet Home Alabama? Give me three steps, all that stuff. And uh, we have to face up to it. But as always, uh, because this is the Deadhead Cannabis Show, we have found uh, some great dead connections to all of them. And uh, the next tune that I want to play for you is a, a very well-known Grateful Dead song. This one is performed by David Lindley, accompanying Warren Zevon, another guy we've talked about quite a bit on this show, uh, and a tune they did for the dedicated album uh, that's come out a number of years ago already. So, Dan, uh, whenever you're ready. was first introduced to David Lindley, God, I don't know, late 70s, 1980, 81, by my good buddy Mikey, who introduced me to anything good in music. Uh, we listened to El Rey OX over and over and over. Um, this was, you know, even before I realized uh, that his probably biggest rock and roll claim to fame prior to that time uh, was playing with Jackson Brown from 72 to 80. 
and on the uh, the song "Stay" coming out of the the loadout, on um, where they where they sing it over, "Oh, won't you stay just a little bit longer?" Uh, David Lindley's the guy who hits the falsetto version of that as they as they go through it. Uh, so, you know, he he's all about and and doing great things. This is a guy that played with Zevon, Curtis Mayfield, Dolly Parton, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, Toto. Uh, Rod Stewart, Joe Walsh, Dan Fogelberg, Ry Cooter, Henry Kaiser, and G.E. Smith. I mean, maybe Toto notwithstanding, those are some of the biggest names uh, uh, in rock and roll out there. And uh, oh, Toto definitely withstanding, man. Toto was like, those were some of the best uh, studio musicians out there. I mean, you want to talk about a super group of the 80s. I don't think you're giving Toto nearly enough respect. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. I uh, I miss the plains down in Africa or the rains down in Africa. Where, you know, look, if, it was music. It served a purpose, but it wasn't going the same direction that I was going. So, you know, I, I had to take a pass on that one for the most part. Well, you thought it was a little bit cheesy, which I think a lot of people did. But in terms of musicianship, uh, those guys are definitely very talented musicians. No question about it. No question about it. And as far as Lindley goes with El Rey OX, the, the She Took Off My Romeos is one of my favorite songs, too. So, I, you know, just good stuff to listen to all day. And uh, he's like, you know, summertime music when you're outdoors and running around and having a good time. And in fact, on July 31st, 1988, and I don't know if this would, would have been in your wheelhouse or not, but they, uh, the Dead played a show at Laguna Seca and El Rey OX opened for them. Uh, it was El Rey OX, Los Lobos, and then The Grateful Dead. I went desperately searching for some indication that there was any overlap at all on the stage between Lindley and the dead. And I couldn't find it. Although I did note that Garcia stepped out and played a few tunes with Los Lobos. So, uh, you know, we have that. It just goes to show that, you know, if you're a musician and you're out there, you're bound to be connected to the grateful dead one way or another. And if we, uh, if we move on to uh, the other gentleman, we just lost Gary Rossington, who's was one of the original members of, uh, Leonard Skinner and kids these days may not know that much about Leonard Skinner and know the whole history of the band and what ultimately happened to them. And, but this guy, Rossington, he's, he's got like a made for TV movie life. In 1976, he was involved in a, in a really serious car crash over Labor Day weekend when he ran into a tree. And for a while there was thought. <laughs> I think it's a, huh? I think it's a prerequisite for a Skinner member to have either gotten in a car crash or a plane crash and some sort of a crash. Well, and then he was on the plane on October 20th, 1977, that went down in Gillsburg, Mississippi. Um, and uh, Ronnie Van Zant died, Steve Gaines died, and others had serious injuries, including uh, Rossington, who survived the plane crash but came away with two broken arms, a broken leg, a, punched, a punctured stomach, and a punctured liver. Interestingly enough, the article did not say how he passed away, um, but anybody who could survive all of that, and he was only 71 years old when he passed away, that that really surprised me as well. Yeah, again, I can make another joke uh, about you know, what your liver has to look like being in, uh, in Leonard Skinner as well, so it doesn't <laughs> surprise me, a, a punctured uh, liver, whether or not it would come from a, the, the accident itself or uh, every other extracurricular activity that those guys were doing. Indeed. So anybody, you know, again, who was of my generation, having uh, their album, One More From The Road, or whatever it was called, was was absolute must-have in your in your record library. And you can listen to all the tunes, and, and they were all great. Give Me Three Steps, I, you know, was is a, was always a fun one, uh, one of my fun tunes that they played. Sweet Home Alabama, you know, what just a perfect tune. But 
you know, you don't talk about Leonard Skinner and you don't get down to the nitty gritty without them without eventually getting to Freebird. And anybody who had that live album knows that as they're going into it at the end, you got some guy in the audience, you'll play Freebird. And so, it, you know, you have jokers at every concert that do it. And, you know, um, you never know when you're going to run into it. Uh, I was at a Peter Himmelman concert once at the Park West in Chicago and Peter's jamming away on something. Somebody stands up and yells, play Freebird. He stopped in his tracks and turned around and started playing Freebird. I was amazed. But, uh, um, you know, I even heard it yelled once or twice at a Grateful Dead show. And we all kind of chuckle about the possibility of Jerry launching himself into a, uh, a Freebird jam. But you know that there is no such thing as a Grateful Dead or Grateful Dead members who aren't going to dabble with some songs once or another, one time or another. And so, again, uh, the crack crew over here at the uh, Deadhead Cannabis show uh, we have unearthed an F, uh, a, a version of Freebird performed by Phil Lesh and Friends at the Capitol Theater on November 3rd, 2013. Phil this time playing with Anders Osborne, Luther Dickinson. So just right there, you're already amazed at the talent in the group he's put together. His son, Graham Lesh, Jason Crosby, and Tony Leone on drums. And um, the beautiful part about this song is it comes at the end of the second set and it's sandwiched in the middle of a Dark Star jam. So, you know, there's Phil and these guys jamming away on Dark Star, uh, you know, the perfect moment to just launch right into uh, uh, Freebird. So, Dan, go ahead and let's hear how Phil and uh, the, the boys, his boys on this occasion, put down Freebird. say miss a little miss a lot boy if you had tickets for that show and didn't make it or didn't think you wanted to travel out to port chester uh the entire show is great by the way if you want to look at that from november 3rd 2013 it's on archive.org and it's it's a great show they they, they play some great stuff and uh, that's anders osborne singing lead on uh on freebird and i'm a, a huge anders fan as well um and was very happy to see that and as long as we're talking about phil uh just want to throw out that uh when you guys are all listening to this show, uh, it will have already been the night and the night before that uh, previously. Uh, but this coming weekend, I'm off to see Phil Lesh and friends at the new Salt Shed uh, Indoor Music Theater uh, in Chicago, uh, Saturday and Sunday night. They're going to be joined supposedly by Warren Haynes, uh, which should make it a spectacular evening and uh, means that uh, next week I will be giving an update on that. It'll be a little bit uh, behind the, uh, the timeline, but... Uh, if it's going to go down the way we all hope it's going to go down, it'll be well worth talking about. So I'm excited about that. Excellent. And going back to, uh, to, to some of the Skinner stuff, 
just out of curiosity, what was written first? Uh, give me three steps. Give me uh, three steps or um, one way out by uh, by the Allen Brothers. They're basically the same song, right? It's it's so funny you say that. It, it, I have that in my notes today. They're exactly the same song in my mind. It's you know Southern guys talking about getting caught in somebody else's girlfriend's house, and you know it, it's 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 exactly. I, I think that the Allman Brothers tune came out because I think it's the original guys who recorded it. So that would take it back to the early. Well, I mean, right? Uh, give me three steps. It's probably seventy four, seventy five. So I it, it's a close call. Um, you know, they didn't go to war over it apparently. So, uh, but yes, I, it's funny that you said that great minds do think alike. I completely think of that as the, uh, the Allman brothers side of the, of, uh, Leonard Skinner. And, and when I was doing this research, I came across an article that asked the question of whether Leonard Skinner was the grateful dead of the South to which I gave a loud resounding no, but they're a really damn good band. And, uh, uh, I'm sorry that I never saw them. I, I certainly was around at the time and could have, but, uh, uh, just never got into one of their concerts uh, for one reason or another. Um, but uh, I do listen to their music still, and that live album is a, is a great, great album to listen to. Gotcha. And the, the, the racism never bothered you? You know, like Charlie Daniels, right? The South's going to do it again. I mean, there were some things that were just, you know, inherent in the songs. What I liked, though, and this is where I come out on all of it, you know, people say that um, Sweet Home Alabama was written in response to Neil Young's Southern Man, uh, he takes the South to task and they, you know, say Southern man don't need you around anyhow and, and push right back. But the story is, is that Ronnie Van Zant and Neil Young were actually very, very good friends, notwithstanding their different perspectives um, <clears throat> in singing about uh, Alabama and the South in the world of music. Everybody kind of loves each other. And, uh, you know, I don't make apologies for people and uh, don't make excuses for it, but uh it's you know great southern rock and roll and um that's all i can say on it yeah yeah i certainly went through a period where you know everyone i knew loved skinnered but uh yeah eventually eventually didn't do too much for me though i do think there's a couple tunes that uh you know i still love like uh, curtis lowe is, is definitely one of probably my favorite skinner tunes but yeah re- regardless i agree you know music transcends and uh you never never want to see these guys pass you know Speaking of you know musicians that have passed, I'd be remiss as you said we, we record several days you know uh, differently than the day we we actually air. But the day that we're recording right now is the fiftieth anniversary of Pigpen's passing, and uh, you know you think about some of these other guys we're talking about the fact they got to live fifty years longer than Pig did. Uh, you know lets us realize that they did have great careers, and you know although it's very very sad they're now gone. Uh, amazing that they actually outlived Pig by 50. You know, that's a great point to bring up, and I'm glad you did, so it didn't uh, get by us like it got by me when I was planning this show, because uh, otherwise we would have been listening to a lot of Primal Dead today. Um, but 50 years is, is really an amazing period of time, uh, you know, and within the rock and roll world, but of course, you know, that he's he's almost right around the same time as Dwayne Allman, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, you know, and all those people who we talk about in the 27 Club, but it was like the 27 Club all within the, a year or two of each other. He, he got swept up in this 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 life of excess that took uh, far too many, you know, young legendary rock stars already in their own right. Uh, you know, and obviously Kurt Cobain in later years and and others who have, who have unfortunately... Uh, Amy Winehouse was another 27. Amy Winehouse, that's right. And, uh, you know, I look, I can't explain it and... You know, I don't even know if these people could go back and explain it. It's just, uh, you know, when you're young and you've got money and you've got ability to get the things you want to get, 
Uh, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of us that go around saying as much fun as that would be. Thank God we didn't have that access. Thank God we didn't have uh, the ability to do all of that. Um, you know, and, and look, at the end of the day, it's a life cut short. And, you know, I, I'm sure nobody ultimately feels worse about it than, than the individuals themselves, right? Because look at everything that, that, they lost, that, that they lost out on and the opportunities to continue to, to, to do their great music and their um, uh, great everything. And, 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 and all the fans who, you know, how many people sit around and say, oh, I wish I would have seen Pigpen. I wish I would have seen Dwayne Allman. I wish I would have seen Lowell George. I wish I would have seen any of these guys. Uh, Jimi Hendrix, Janice, and they just, you know, and then you have your survivors, right? You got the Mick Jaggers and for God's sakes, the Keith Richards of the world who, you know, look like they may be here forever, regardless of what they do. So, you know, in, in some ways it's almost like an unfair lottery. And the only way you, you know, you, you don't lose is if you don't play. Um, but I'm sure there's some people would argue that if they didn't play, they never would have been the performer that they were. So I don't know where it goes other than the fact that we're still here and we get to listen to them. And, uh, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And uh, it's a good thing that they got that time to actually play as much as they did. And I think, you know, as Neil Young says, sometimes it's better to burn out than to fade away. So I think a lot of those guys went out with a bang and uh, realized they'd, they'd achieved, you know, what they wanted. But obviously, I, I agree. You know, life cuts short. But there's always, you know, something to be said. And I've heard some rock stars, uh, you know, discuss it recently that, you know, your peak creativity is, is in your 20s. So, you know, if they hit a point where, uh, you know, life got real for them or, you know, they're resting uh, on the excess of, you know, not having to, uh, to be creative anymore because they've already had their hits and they've already had their, uh, their, their fan base is built and whatever they put out is going to get listened to, but it, it doesn't require the same level of, uh, of discipline that they had when they were younger of writing all the time and, and being kind of more in tune with what's happening in the world than, than you are as you get older. And is, is nothing more emblematic of that than these days, um, watching Roger Daltrey scream out, hope I die before I get old. <laughs> you know, and it's like <clears throat> all these anthems that they all sang about back then. And yet, you know, here they are. And, you know, God love Roger Daltrey. He still can go out when they're on tour every third or fourth night and belt out the tunes like he used to. And, you know, I, I, I'd like to ask him, but I'm going to bet that he's damn happy that he did get old and, you know, that he's still here to be able to do what he loves doing. Yeah, I mean, of course. Who would not want to be around to experience it and enjoy it? But, uh, but yeah, I, mean, I feel fortunate that we got the Janices and we got the Pigs and we got the, 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 the Morrisons to do the work that they did when they did it uh, for the rest of us to enjoy for you know the next 50 plus years. Right. You know, their, their, their sounds will be here as long as there's people to listen to them. And, and that's a wonderful thing. And, you know, it's a beautiful contribution to make. Quick pivot back to marijuana because, you know, we talk about the elections today, some good news, some, you know, not necessarily bad news, but not the same good news. Uh, we see what's going on with canopy, jobs being cut, people being laid off. There is good things going on in the industry, people. And by God, we're here to tell you about them. Twitter has announced that they are going to allow ads for cannabis and THC products in the United States. This is no small thing. Um, does Elon Musk get credit for this? I don't know. I don't care. It's just another building block or block along the way that's being knocked down uh, and allowing cannabis to become part of uh, our regular culture. Yeah, I think it's high time that a lot more of the um, the social media companies do this. So it's nice to see that Twitter did it first, but I expect others will follow soon after. Yeah, um, absolutely. They they say that we permit approved cannabis, including CBD, cannabinoids, advertisers to target the United States under the heading of drugs and drug paraphernalia. That, that's a beautiful thing. 
that advertisers can now promote brand preference and informational cannabis-related content for certain products and services, including CBD and similar cannabinoid products, THC and similar products, cannabis-related products and services, including delivery lab uh, services, that kind of stuff, and more. However, American cannabis companies, brands, and purveyors will need to pass through a Twitter advertiser approval process to ensure they are legitimate and educated on the platform. Uh, But once that happens, industry marketers will have access to Twitter's entire suite of advertising products, including promoted tweets, promoted product opportunities, location-specific takeovers, in-stream video sponsorships, and partner publication features. Uh, And just quick shout out, thank you to MJ Biz for providing all this good news today. Um, But uh, I mean, this is, this is a big thing, right? I mean, Twitter has taken a role in our society uh, where if Twitter is saying it's okay, I I think that goes a long way uh, towards helping people normalize their own feelings and relationships about it. And, you know, maybe voters giving it another chance when they weren't willing to the first time around. Yeah, I think that's possible. I mean, we, we've all known that Elon Musk is a, uh, a strong supporter of the cannabis industry for a long time. Every time he puts out a, uh, a statement as far as, you know, what he's going to pay to take a company private or to, uh, to, to personally, and there's always a 420 in the, uh, in the, uh, the number. So it's uh, no secret that he's a, either a user of cannabis or a strong advocate for cannabis. So it doesn't surprise me as he took over this platform that he'd be the first one to make this change. Uh, but hopefully it does normalize, you know, other advertisers saying, okay, well, I'll, I'll allow, um, or the other platforms with advertising to say, I'll allow cannabis on my platform as well, because look, it's been one of the single toughest things to build an audience on a lot of these platforms. It's been really tough. And every time you do it, you know, boom, they come in and knock you out and say, you have to start over again. Uh, where you have to go back and rethink your social media strategy and it becomes ex- exceedingly expensive when every time you build an audience that you lose that entire audience and have to rebuild. Uh, or you just finally say, I give up, you know, I'm just not going to advertise or try to you know, have any sort of social media presence. So we'll see how this, uh, this moves things, but you know, I'm hopeful that, uh, as goes Twitter, uh, so will, you know, Facebook and Instagram and, and some of the others. That would be great. Um, and, and the other great news story out there today, and, and I just love this because it, it, you know, it's like teenage smoking going down, which there was another story about that today too. But now there's a, a, a government sponsored study that says CBD could reduce, cra- could reduce cravings for nicotine and help tobacco smokers quit. So, you know, anyone who's, you know, wants to, you know, try and draw uh, parallels, you're right. This is one that can help you get off tobacco and you're not smoking terrible things like you are when you're smoking, not just nicotine, but all the chemicals that they put into cigarettes. But this, this study uh, in the journal Chemical Research and Toxicology last month showed that relatively low doses of CBD significantly inhibited a key enzyme associated with the processing of nicotine in the body, which could stave off cravings. Uh, when they studied liver tissue and microsomes derived from specialized cell lines, it showed that cannabidiol, cannabidiol inhibited multiple relevant enzymes, and that included CYP2A6 as opposed to 2A7, I guess, the main enzyme that metabolizes nicotine. Now, this is big, right? This is promoting cannabis in a positive way, but it's not just promoting cannabis. It's promoting it in a way that allows people who are so inclined to stop using a product uh, that they may have really become addicted to uh, that we all know is far more dangerous, significantly far more dangerous uh, than switching over to cannabis. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, you know, again, inconclusive that this thing is, uh, you know, the study 
is may show, I think is, is how they phrased it. Uh, but, you know, definitely very encouraging. So uh, anything that we can do to get people off of, um, off of uh, nicotine, I think is, a, is positive. And if it can be done with uh, something that we all believe in, then, uh, then all the better. Absolutely. And, and part of uh, the study said that they found that for the first time, more Americans openly admitted to smoking marijuana or eating cannabis-infused edibles than those who said they smoked cigarettes in the past week. So to me, that's a step forward towards normalization. If, if the habits of people across the country are beginning to shift and, and folks are switching over uh, to the far safer uh, and uh, we think much better cannabis and marijuana or even CBD as opposed to going back to nicotine, good for us as a society and that's the direction we should be moving. Yep, agreed. So you're right. Not all bad news in the industry this week. Uh, fair amount of good news, at least in terms of you know the scientific side. So in, in terms of normalization. So you know, hopefully we uh, we continue to see more of those stories and, and less of the uh, the ones of companies struggling. Well, that's all I got for today. That's a lot of news. That's some great Grateful Dead. We've got uh, a, a final tune from. Um, uh, the Berks Community Theater, March 13th, 1985, that we're going to spin for you here in uh, just a minute as we go out the door. Uh, any final thoughts, Rob? No. Uh, just, uh, again, 50 years to pig. Wish you were still with us, brother. And uh, thanks for all the music you put out for the community during the time you were there. And uh, really would have loved to have seen what, what pig would have had for us in the years to come uh, and how much different the, the Grateful Dead would have been as a band if we'd... Uh, gotten for another 10 years or 15 years or 20 years. So uh, always, always like to wonder what, uh, what the seventies and eighties would have been like had pig made it uh, a little bit longer, but you know, here's to him and, and thank you for, uh, for the years you did put in with the band and uh, wow, 50 years, miss you, man. Box back nitties forever. Pig was the man. There's no doubt about it. And uh, uh, it's just going to make me go home tonight and listen to him some more. But thank you, Rob. Appreciate it as always. And as we uh, go out the door, we're going to end with, you know, what may be the, the Grateful Dead's, you know, uh, most famous and, and uh, meaningful encore. And uh, given the topic we were talking about today, uh, losing uh, David Lynn and Gary Rossington, I think that this is very appropriate. So we're going to leave you with uh, beautiful strains of Brokedown Palace played by the Grateful Dead uh, 38 years ago. And... Um, Enjoy, have a great week, and enjoy your cannabis. Enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Easy for me to say. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. 
To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canna podcasters right here on PodConnex and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.